Let me ask you to bow with me as we come now to the Scripture. Uh, Father in Heaven, uh, I pray now that you would help us as we open your Word. I pray that you would speak to us through it, that we would be blessed in such a way that it would be revealed to us and through us that we belong to you and that other people then could see our lives and worship you as well. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 17. John chapter 17. As you do that, let me just mention an announcement that I forgot to make, which is probably most important. That is, you don't have to pick up the chairs after this service. There you go. So you get a Sunday off. John chapter 17, please. I want to read this whole chapter now. Just bear in mind that this is Jesus praying. That will be clear as we read it. This is Jesus praying. And um, and it is on the night that he was betrayed. So he's on his way to be betrayed. On his way to his crucifixion. John chapter 17 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I no longer, am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, with which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, you know that a couple of weeks ago I finished the book of Acts. We'd been there for quite some time. And at the end of that, uh, I have to make a choice where we're going to head after that. I take those choices seriously because I know it affects our lives together. Whatever it is that I'm preaching, whatever it is we're thinking about together, affects our lives. It's a difficult thing for me to do. I spend a great deal of time praying, thinking, reading, uh, testing things out to see how they fit. Um, and, And so I've chosen this. John chapter 17. I preached through John chapter 17 about 13 or 14 years ago. I read back through some of my sermons from that time period and realized, I think I've grown. And I'd like another shot at John 17. Not that I think I preached heresy then. I think they were just fine, I suppose. But, uh, but there's some things that strike me now. And I think I want to work through them. Plus, I must confess that, again, this is how I do things, in my own soul, in the rattling of my own mind, uh, I think that what was pressing upon me, whether this was from God or whether it was the pizza I had eaten the night before, um, what was pressing upon me was a desire for more intimacy with God, to see Him closer up. And I began to think, where else could I see God closer up than the Son praying to the Father? What more intimate picture of God could we have, perhaps, than that? And so that's what we find as Jesus is praying in this most intimate time. We find an intra-Trinitarian conversation. We listen to the Son speaking directly to His Father at a most intimate moment. At a most intimate moment. And so that here is why we'll take this up today. As you might suspect, we'll only take a bit of verse 1. But it's important for us to begin to, to walk through this. Many have called this Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, and a priest, of course, is one who intercedes for another, who mediates for another, is a go-between. That's the sense of being a priest. In Latin, the word for priest means uh, a bridge builder, one that, that stands between the two, that unites the two. And so we see Jesus as just that, obviously, the bridge builder. Uh, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as our mediator. He says to his son in the faith, Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, that there is but one mediator between God and human beings, the man Christ Jesus. And so he's a mediator. He, he's a go-between. He brings God to us, us to God. That's a sense of what a priest does. Not only that, but Jesus is our intercessor, the author of Hebrews, who's very deliberate in speaking of Jesus as our high priest. This one who's this mediator is also our intercessor. He's not only a mediator of this new covenant, brings it to us, us to God through it, but he is our intercessor. He says that Jesus is able to save completely 
those who come to God through him because he lives to intercede for us. So he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he lives. That is, he's been resurrected and he's ascended and he lives in glory. And while he's there, he intercedes for us. He is our very presence, if you will, or our very advocate in glory. So if anything would happen to come into the gates of heaven that would be accusatory, which would be against us in any way, Jesus intercepts that. And in that sense, intercedes for us. If we have particular needs, he intercedes for us. We go to the Father through him. There he is in the very court of heaven. Thus, we're assured that as long as he lives, as long as we're in him, as long as we go through him, then, of course, we have access to God. We understand his mediating while he was on earth. As our priest, he brought the sacrifice of his own life to take away our sins and thus bring us by faith to God. So this is his high priestly prayer. We see him interceding, praying on our behalf. It gives us a glimpse of even what Jesus must be doing now for us, but a deep glimpse into uh, his own heart his own mission, and what it is that he was about on our behalf. Not only that, this could be called the Lord's Prayer. Now, we have another prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples to pray. They came to Jesus one day and said, teach us to pray. I probably would have said, teach me how to walk on water. Uh, That was really cool. Um, but there must have been something about, the, about Jesus' own prayer life that was phenomenal, so much so that they said, the thing that we want to ask him to teach us, you know, that you don't have many occasions where the disciples went to Jesus and said, give us a lesson about this. But they didn't go to Jesus and say, give us a lesson about praying. There must have been something about, about praying in the context of Jesus' life that, that, that was astonishing to them, startling to them, amazing to them. So they went to him and said, teach us to pray. So he gave them this prayer that we begin by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But that was their prayer to pray. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Now, to some degree, Jesus probably followed that prayer, but, but some of us didn't quite fit him, like, forgive us our debts. Jesus had no debts. Now, he might have prayed that on behalf of humanity. He may have prayed that on behalf of others, but not on himself. But, not to be tricky, but that really is the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that we know Jesus prayed. Now, it's unique in some sense because it's Jesus praying and there's some things here just unique to him. But also we can learn about praying from this prayer as well because Jesus is our model. And so we learn about it there. Now it's interesting as well that this finds itself in this context of the Gospel of John. Uh, and it finds itself very close, as I mentioned before we read it, very close to the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's on that night in which he was betrayed. It's on that night that Jesus was with his disciples sharing that last Passover meal. And as John develops Jesus on his way to his crucifixion, he uses a dramatic phrase sparingly, but, he, but obviously in the context of his gospel. And that phrase is one that Jesus uses here in the opening uh, line of his prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you'd been reading through the Gospel of John carefully, that phrase would strike you because we first read it, or a phrase like it, in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. 
this is a situation uh, that's familiar to you, a story that's familiar to you in the life of Jesus. Jesus is at a wedding. Uh, some of his disciples are there and his mom's there. And he's at a wedding and they run out of wine. Now it may well be that Mary was 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 part, was a hostess there. Maybe she was part of part of the, the friends that were helping to put on that wedding reception and or not. But but Mary notices she comes to Jesus. She wants him to help out and he he gets it. And so um, verse one says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother said to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So you get a sense, if you're just reading that for the first time, you get a sense that there's a predetermined moment. There's a predetermined time about which Jesus knows. And he knows when that hour comes, something significant is going to happen. So much so that Jesus is hesitant to to do whatever it is his mom wants him to do at that particular moment in time. Now, we know what happens. We know that Jesus turns water into wine. He turns water into the finest wine. And and from that, we get a great spiritual lesson about the kingdom of God. But even so, you get a sense of reluctance here. Jesus isn't going to lay it all out there. It isn't going to be a, a full manifestation of who he is because his hour hasn't come. But notice verse 11. Says this, the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So you get a sense that this time, this hour, is about the glory of God. It's about the glory of Jesus. It's about Jesus being seen. Because when we talk about glory and, and someone manifesting glory, there's a sense in which it means that you really get to see that person's self who they are. When little children used to run around my grandmother's house naked, as little children are wont to do, she would always remark, there they go in all their glory. Meaning, that kid is really revealing himself or herself to us right now. They're just free. This is how they want to be. Now, she also used to say that about my grandfather while he was sleeping. There he is in all his glory, which then I combined nakedness and my grandfather, and it was really a devastating spiritual (laughs) lesson. But there's a sense that that when glory comes, it's it's this manifestation of the the inner character, the inner person. That person's revealed at that point. When you look in the mirror, that's your glory, if you will. There's a sense of that. If you're doing something that you really love and the smile on your face, that's your glory, if you sense that's revealing who you really are. You're getting a peek into into that person. And Jesus says, there's an hour that's coming. It's predetermined. I know when it is. and, And I'm careful about all of that. And at this moment, there's a sense of his glory that was manifested that was revealed when he turned the water into wine. And in retrospect, that is after the fact, we can go back into that miracle and we can see the significance of it. But then they, they just they probably simply marveled at this one who could do this at this time. And then in chapter 7 and verse 6, Jesus uh, is with uh, his brothers as it's put. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because Jews were seeking to kill him. So you get the scene. Um, He's made enemies of the religious leaders by then. Verse 2. Now the Jews 
Feast of Booths was at hand. This was a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time when the Israelites would um, uh, commemorate their time in the wilderness after they left Egypt before they got to the Promised Land. And they would build little booths or tabernacles or tents. And they would do it out of mud and, and stones and sticks and leaves and so forth. Uh, and they would live in them for a short period of time to, to replay in their own minds how God had delivered them from Egypt to the Promised Land and protected them and kept them and all of that. So that's what this was all about. Very, very significant time uh, in, in Israel. Verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. So again, we're just following this through. And that's the second time we see this in John's Gospel and realize there's a predetermined time that Jesus knows about that's coming and it's significant and something's going to happen. You get a sense of glory. They're even saying, go show yourself. And he's saying, no, I can't show myself. So he eventually goes up and he goes up in secret. Now, he does some really neat things while he's there, but, but he's not revealing his glory completely at those points. Then in chapter 8, uh, we read this of Jesus. He's in a discussion, speaking to people, saying that he's the light of the world. In verse 19 of chapter 8, they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So we see this predetermined time Jesus knows about. He's heading towards. It's significant. He's going to be seen. His glory is going to be known. And there must be something about arrest because they tried to arrest him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Nothing could deter him. Nothing could keep him from his appointed task during that hour. Then in John chapter 12, And verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it, it seems to be a rather normal kind of question. You would think that there would be people who wanted to see Jesus. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to see Jesus. And so you get a sense that there are people who wanted to see Jesus. And, and since his disciples were around him all the time, you would think that they would go through him, them, to see Jesus. They would come to the disciples. We'd like to see Jesus. Doesn't seem to be a huge deal. Jesus takes it as a huge deal, however. This idea of seeing him. Notice how he responds. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Whoa. He doesn't say anything about whether he talked to these folks or not. But, but Jesus takes this as a moment to say, Now the hour is here. And again, as we're reading through the Gospel of John, that should just cause us to suck air. The hour hadn't come. The hour hadn't come. The hour hadn't come. Now it's here. What's he going to do? He goes on to explain. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Now my soul is troubled. So whatever this hour is, it brings trouble to the soul of Jesus, which is significant for us as we listen to him pray. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. So he's not going to appeal to his father to save him from it, at this point at least, in chapter 12. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a, father came from, uh, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, kind of missed the voice of God. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And so Jesus said, okay, the hour has come. And now we see something. We see that he's going to be lifted up in some way. It's going to be related to his death. And there it is. And then in chapter 13, finally, Jesus meets with his disciples. It was that night we call the Last Supper. It was that night of Passover, which Jesus uh, transformed into what we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 1, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. In other words, he knows now the hour has come and we realize that whatever else he's going to go to his Father and he's going to reveal, going to manifest his love, most specifically to his disciples, but as we know, in the context of the whole world. And so this hour now has come. And, and so Jesus meets with his disciples on this very intimate night. You, you know what happened. He washed their feet. And he did it as an illustration of love. His love for them, but most especially the love they're to have for each other. They're to love each other as he's loved them. That is, and as servants, they're to humble themselves. And they're even to humble themselves to such lack of notoriety. To look like a slave to wash each other's feet in the context of their lives. That's the love they're to have for each other. He goes on to tell them that he's going to be leaving them, but, but not to worry. He's going where he's going so he can prepare a place for them, and he's going to come back for them. And they say, we don't know where you're going. And then he says, well, I'm going to the Father. We don't know the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's a sense, if you're attached to me, Jesus says, you should be comforted by that because you know me, therefore you'll go where I'm going. He speaks to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit in such a way that he says that, that I'm leaving you, but the Holy Spirit is going to come, another comforter, and he's going to bring my very presence to you. So I'm going to be with you by way of this Spirit who is with you. So I will be in you, my Father will be in you, and we will dwell together as one. And he says to them, now I want you to abide in me and my word in you. And you can ask me things, and I'll do it that you might bear fruit. And he goes on to tell them that though in the world there's going to be difficulty, in fact, they may be hated, there's going to be tribulation in the world. He says, don't worry, I've overcome the world. And then he says to them, I'm going to give you my peace. You'll live in my peace. It's not the peace as the world might give you, as you might suspect it to be. But I'm going to give you my peace and nothing, no one can take it from you. And then he begins to pray. Now this is an amazing time. Because Jesus knows precisely what is going to happen. He knows that he's in the midst of 
what for anyone would be the most severe crisis. Because he's about to do what no one can do. He's about to take upon himself the sin of sinners, face God, receive eternal wrath for that sin. That is what he's facing in these moments. And he prays. As we outline this prayer, he prays first, it appears, for himself, then he prays for his disciples who are there, and then he prays for all the disciples that come after them, that is, us, all Christians since then, if you will, and even after us. So, so this prayer is a transcendent prayer. It transcends the moment. and it, it takes him where he is, they where they are, and us and everyone before and after us as well, all believers in him. So, so that's the sense of this prayer. And the question is, why is it that Jesus stopped to pray? Why did he stop to pray? Now, we know Jesus was a prayer. If you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus prayed more than anybody else. If you want a model for a person who prays, go to Jesus, because he prays more than anybody else, it seems. At his baptism, he was praying. Luke puts it like this. He says that as he was praying, the heavens opened up. So it was Jesus praying at his baptism. The scripture says that he often went alone to pray. And even pray all night long. He prayed, it appears, the whole night before he chose his disciples. You can only imagine the struggle that he may have gone through in the midst of praying about those disciples. He was going to need to pick one who would betray him. He was going to need to pick one who would deny him. And then he was going to pick ten more who weren't all that hot either. And so he prayed the whole night before. And then he, he prayed one time in their presence. The scripture says he was alone, but in the presence of his disciples. And in the midst of that prayer, he was sparked to ask them this question, who do men say that I am? He prayed, withdrew and prayed after he fed the 5,000 because they were going to try to make him king. And so he withdrew and he prayed. You wonder, since he was tempted as all men just as we are tempted, that perhaps that was a tempting thing to become king at that moment and not have to pursue the cross. He went away to pray. That's his response to that. We know, as I mentioned before, that he had such a dynamic prayer life that his disciples actually asked him to teach them to pray, which he then did. We know the prayer that would come later in this evening, the gut-wrenching drops of blood prayer. In the garden, Jesus prayed. So it was a habit for him to pray, but but I think the reason it was a habit for him to pray was because he was a man. We know that when Jesus came, when the incarnation happened, he didn't give up his deity. He was still by nature God, but he took upon himself the nature of humanity, yet without sin. Now, just as an aside, bear in mind that sin is not an essential quality of a human being. Adam had no sin when he was created, yet he was human. We will have no sin on the new earth after we're glorified. So sin is not an essential quality of a human being. So Jesus having no sin, it didn't make him less human. You can say, well, he really wasn't like us because he didn't have sin. No, it didn't make him less human. He was still a man. And in his humanity... What he faced was utter dependence upon God. 
And in his utter dependence upon God, he prayed. He was a man of the word and a man of prayer as a model for us as the perfect man. As, as any sinless man would need to live, Jesus lived. And he lived by word and he lived by prayer. Thus, when he found himself in weakness, he prayed and he prayed often. Because he saw reality. He saw what was really out there. And he knew the weakness of humanity. And thus he prayed, you see. See, we can buy books on prayer as we ought and read them to motivate us and and help explain prayer. But the thing that makes us pray, the thing that drives us to our knees, is when we realize our own weakness and we realize we're in difficulty, we realize we're in trouble, and it's real to us that we finally can't. Then we pray. You don't need technique at that point in time. You don't need technique in the ICU. You don't need technique when your life's falling apart. You don't need technique when your friends' lives are falling apart. You got knees. You pray. And you pour it out. And so it isn't surprising at all. Jesus, the perfect man, would teach us to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. No surprise there at all. He says, if you want to live as a human being, understand your dependence and your dependence upon God, so keep it up. No surprise that Paul, who is more mature than perhaps the rest of us, would teach us this. Pray without ceasing. He would say your whole life should be this sense of praying because you know your utter dependence upon God at all times. When we're not praying, it's probably because we think we've got a handle on it. When we're not praying, it's probably because we think, oh, things will go well because they always do. And if there's a problem, I can generally handle it without bothering God about it. But the truth of the matter is, we can't. And our minds always should be Godward, if you will. A sense of dependence upon Him. No surprise that the Apostle would say about those he loved, I, I never stop giving thanks for you. I never stop praying for you. No surprise that he would say, pray for me, that I might have boldness. And so we have Jesus coming now in the midst of this crisis to pray. And he opens his prayer in the same way that he taught us to pray, with this line, word, Father. He says, Father. And I don't know. I've been trying all week long to think about how I could put this in a way that would just just nail it and I, I can't so I'm just going to say it like this the amazing picture if we can only grasp it is that Jesus knows exactly what his father is going to do to him Isaiah the prophet has an amazing line about the crucifixion of Jesus he said it pleased the Lord to crush him What Jesus experienced on the cross was not by the hand of Satan. What Jesus experienced on the cross was by the hand of His Father, by the hand of God. There's a poignant scene in the life of Abraham. And it's when he's with his son Isaac. And you may remember that Isaac was his son, his only son, the son he loved, the son of the covenant. And God came to Abraham and said, I want you to slay him. I want you to sacrifice him. So if you remember the scene, Abraham takes Isaac and they go on the trip. And they're together with their servants. They leave their servants behind. Isaac has the wood for the sacrifice. Abraham seems to have the flame for the burnt offering and the knife to kill the sacrifice. And at that moment in time, Isaac 
looks to his father, Abraham, and says, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham turns to him and said, the Lord will provide. But at that moment, you get this picture of this trusting boy, trusting his father, but you get this father knowing what he's about to do, yet loving his son. And there's something in that between Jesus and his father at this moment in time that goes beyond anything that I can really grab a hold of or anything that I can share with you. I wish I had a picture to paint that would make it clear, but I trust the Spirit will just kind of give you a... and it will help you to see that. What's happening here? The trust of the Son, knowing that his father is about to forsake him, and at the same time still calling him father, as he trusts. And the father loving his son at that moment, listening to this prayer and answering. It's an amazing picture. Now I know that for many of us, calling God father is not pleasant. In fact, J.I. Packer once said that the Christian name for God is father. But, but when some people hear that, they recoil because their experience with their earthly father was not good at all. In fact, that would be an understatement. In fact, those of us who've tried to be good fathers have sat down, at least I have, with my children and said, please, don't think that God is as I am. Please understand that every time I failed to care for you rightly, God will never fail. That every time I failed to protect you rightly, God will never fail. That every time I haven't been father as you need and long for, remember God is not like me. So Jesus looks to his father and says, Father, because he understands the perfection of his father. He understands that he's speaking to the one who's the perfect provider, the perfect protector, the perfect one to care, and even knowing what he's about to face at the hand of his own father. He knows that his father is the perfect one to give discipline, and Jesus is willing to submit to whatever comes his way by the hand of his heavenly father because he knows and he trusts him. And so Jesus has this affectionate father and this term, father, that to him means everything and to us should as well as we understand God as our Father. And then he prays for himself. And I say seemingly prays, prays for himself because there's a twist to this. And he starts out by saying, Father, uh, glorify, uh, glorify the Son. So Jesus is essentially saying, Father, glorify me. I mean, that's the guts of, of how he begins, glorify me. And by that, he's saying, the time has come for people to know who I am. Reveal me, show me. I'm the eternal Son of God. In fact, he goes on in verse 5 and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he says, When I came to this earth, I gave up, if you will, my right to glory, and I humbled myself as a servant, even to death on a cross. But now, after, now I want you to exalt me and, and, and show me. And of course, the Father would answer that prayer. In the midst of that cross, Jesus would be glorified. At his resurrection, he'd be glorified. At his ascension, he'd be glorified. We'd see who he really is, the eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That was going to happen at that moment. And so the Son, knowing the certainty of that, prayed for it and said, glorify your Son. Show me to be who I am. But he had a purpose for praying that. Being glorified 
was not an end in itself to Jesus. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That was the purpose for which Jesus came. The purpose for which Jesus came was that the Father would be glorified. The Father would be seen. The Father would be understood. The Father would be revealed. That's what we read in our affirmation of faith this morning uh, from John chapter 1. A great expression. No one has ever seen God. God, I'm sorry, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And that only God who is at the Father's side is a reference to Jesus. He's the one who has made Him known. He's the one who has made Him known. And so Jesus came to glorify His Father to make Him known. And He's saying, glorify Me. Show people who I am. Because when they see Me, they'll see You. When they see Me, then they'll understand You. When they see Me, then they'll be coming to You. Glorify Me that you may be glorified. Now, there's a very real sense in which Jesus prayed that uniquely. No one could glorify the Father the way that He did. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a sense in which this can be a prayer of our own lips. Do you know that a day will come when we will be glorified? When we speak in theological categories, we talk, for instance, of justification, sanctification, and glorification for human beings. Justification comes at that time when we come to God by faith and He declares us righteous. It's an amazing declaration. And He declares us righteous. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. And He's saying, you're right with me. From this day forward, you're justified. You're righteous. That's amazing. Forgiven our sins, pardoned our sins, and righteous before Him. And then we go through, we live in this process of sanctification, meaning we're set apart to become holy. The Bible uses various expressions for this, like we're being conformed to the image of Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, that's where you live. You live in this process of sanctification. A day will come when we'll be perfectly sanctified, that is, we'll be glorified. We'll have new bodies, glorious bodies. Jesus, uh, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bodies that are imperishable, incorruptible. And we'll be, at that point in time, conformed to the image of Jesus. We'll be reflecting Him. So our glorification means that at that point in time, people will see us as we are in Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Hello? Come on. Breathe. That's good. Um, be glorified faster if you don't, but it's a bit messy. Uh, if you could just wait for another 15 minutes, then you can do it on your own time. But, the, uh, but that's the sense of glorification. Now, there's a sense in which, hang on with me here, there's a sense in which our present process of sanctification is also a process by which the glory of God is seen in us. The more we reflect Jesus. So let me ask you this. If you can remember when you came to faith in Christ, what was the attraction? Now some of you can know the date and time and all of that. Filled out a little form probably. May have a little deal with the, the date on it and all of that. It's a funny kind of thing. Um, it's a wonderful kind of thing. You may have gone forward in a meeting and, and you remember that moment. You remember when it all came 
in on you and you go, this is it. Others, like myself, can't remember those sorts of times. I think I just kind of slid in. Uh, God slid me in. So I don't remember the date and time and all that. But I do know that I know. So what is there that's attracting you to being saved, to, to believing in Jesus? And you could list a whole number of blessings, forgiveness of sins. I mean, come on. That's wonderful to live guilt-free before God, to live with a clear conscience that no one, nothing can accuse you before him because Jesus has taken your sins. And to know that and to live by that is just a wonderful blessing. And the peace and assurance that brings that when a need comes that as you pray, you know that God will hear you because you come to your heavenly Father through Jesus and Jesus is our intercessor and you know that therefore you will be heard by God. What a blessing that is. And to know that. And some of us came through this perhaps in in a crisis moment. It may have been that your life was falling apart and you realized that you needed God. And so you may not have been that articulate, you may not have been that theological, but you knew that you had to to, to go to God. And as you did, you, you learned about Jesus and, and, and you learned, therefore, what he had done. And, and then through the back door, you realized, oh, my problem is sin. I realize that. And that's the reason for which Christ came to die, that he might die for my sins, that, that I might be reconciled to God. And whew, what a blessing that is. And the peace that comes in the midst of that. And the, the fellowship then that comes among other believers. You go, I fit with this group of people. We don't need to be proud and arrogant because we know that we're all sinners and, and therefore we're all the same. We are all weak. We all depend upon God through Christ. Therefore, you're in this community and it's a great, great blessing for others. It may have been more social than that. You may have looked at the world and said, this world is not as it is, as it should be. There's injustice and there's poverty and there's pain and, and death and all of that. What can be the cure for that? And perhaps then you, you went through the political process. You went through the medical process. You went through the educational process. You went through the, the, the amusement process. And you found nothing there to satisfy. And you said, somehow this world has to be right. And then you come to know of Jesus, the one who sets the world right. And the one whose kingdom is here. And thus, as a person, you can know him. And as a community, we can know him. And we can move in the context of the world to set things right. However it was in the blessing that it is. Let me turn that just quickly. And let us also to add to that, don't subtract any of that, but to add to that this. That you desire to be saved so that God would be glorified. That you desire to be saved, that God would be glorified. In one sense, to pray, God, glorify me. That is, show me as one who belongs to you. Work in me in such a way that, 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 I, that people know that I belong to you. Whether that be in the context of my character, certainly. Whether it be in the context of my witness, certainly. But God, let people see that I belong to you. But, but don't show them that just so they can pat me on the head and say, oh, he's a fine fellow. What a nice guy. Look how patient and kind and joyful and forgiving he is. Oh, we ought to have more like him. No, not for that reason. But God, glorify me. Show me that I belong to Jesus so that you might be glorified so that other people can go and think that person must have a great God. In the life of Jesus, of course. He was glorified. He was glorified in a way that probably none of us could ever imagine because 
His glory began on a cross when He was lifted up. And it was there that we began to see Him. It was there that we could see Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We could see Him there as this sacrificial one. All through the Old Testament, the, the, the case had been made that in order to stand in the presence of God, someone had to go before you, a priest. The case had been made that a sacrifice would have to come because of our sins. To stand in the presence of God, our guilt would have to be dealt with. Our sins would have to be dealt with. And here's Jesus manifesting all of that at that moment in time. His glory, what we can see now as we look upon the cross, yes, the glory of God. There is the holiness of God right before us. He cannot abide sin in our rebellion against Him. And it has consequences. And they're devastating consequences. The eternal wrath of God. But then also in the midst of this cross, we see the very love of God. Because rather than pouring that out upon us who deserve it, He pours it out upon Jesus, His very beloved Son. And not only that, we see the power of God because in the midst of that, He does a victory over sin. He conquers sin and death in the midst of that by the very power of of the work of Jesus. And we see the wisdom of God because who else other than God Himself would think this up and execute it in the way that He did? God was glorified. And then as Jesus is raised, Jesus is glorified, God is glorified. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now He shall be exalted to that place which is above every place and given a name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and say, He is the Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. He's glorified. The night that He was betrayed, who knew? He took bread. And he gave it to His disciples and He said, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, think of my glory. And as you think of my glory, glorify my Father. This was his plan. He sent me that you might be rescued, that the world would be made right. Give praise to Him. Pray with me. Father, pray for me and for us. That we would desire to be saved. We would desire to be followers of Christ so that other people could see our lives and not pat us on the head, not be thrilled with us, not give thanks to us, but rather they would glorify You. May, Father, whatever we do, whatever works we do, be reflecting our relationship with you so that others would see and glorify, praise, worship, honor, come to, submit to, trust in our Father who is in heaven. Father, we've seen it in the life of Jesus. We benefit by all that he has done. And now work in us that your glory may be seen. 
Well, they take this bread and this juice in such a way and set it apart to enable us to know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. This one who is glorified that you might be glorified. Father, I pray that in his presence we would be filled. Filled with his presence, filled with his spirit. Transformed into his character and likeness. So that you may be glorified. Jesus, work in us. In this we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy, who believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners, and who desire to live as one who glorifies God through Jesus Christ, that is, one who lives as one who is a follower of Christ. If that's true for you, let me ask you to come. These two rows, sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, allow to just go off in your head this, Father, glorify me. Show me to be yours so that you may be glorified. Please come.